Okay. So, some of you have uh, some printed copies, and, and hopefully everyone else has the PDFs that you received. And so, um, we'll be taking a look and doing the same thing we did last week as far as the material is concerned. But I do want to draw your attention to the appendices. So, I've taken some of the material that isn't germane to the main topics, our six main sections, and I put it in the appendices because I've taught this material before and uh, this has really refined it and taken those things and put them as appendices as their supplement to what we're looking at. So you can take a look at those at the end of the, the notes, the packet that you have received, and some of these things will be supportive of what we're talking about here. And in particular today, um, as we get into giving... I have an entire appendix appendix, uh, for um, giving and tithing in the Old Testament. I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on New Testament principles for giving, which are certainly built on the Old Testament. But you'll want to take that, and I'm going to refer you to another resource as we get into it, as we get right before we talk about New Testament giving. So take a look at that, and I'll be referring to some other appendices as we move into other sections as well. Just a reminder of where we've come from and where we're going. So we started with a biblical worldview of the faithful steward last week. That was our opening session. Spent a couple of hours on that. Then we got into the biblical steward's five uses of money. And last time we talked about earn, the acquisition of money through work and living, the use of money to meet daily expenses. And hopefully that was helpful for you. This time, we're going to start with giving, so the use of money to give to the church, various ministries, and to meet the needs of others. Then we will cover the owing section, or debt, and finally the growing, which would be saving and investing. And so hopefully these will be of interest to you and useful for you, as uh, hopefully last week's topics were. So this will be our focus for this time We're going to be looking at giving as a faithful steward. Section 4 in your notes, if you're following along there. Just let me get something set up here. Okay. A main passage, a fundamental passage on giving for the New Testament believer found in 2 Corinthians 9.7. And we'll be referring to this more in depth as we go on, but this is at the heading of your section on giving as a faithful steward. 2 Corinthians 9.7. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he writes this, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's a fundamental passage when it comes to giving. And we will unpack that a bit as we move through. But as we've done with other sections, I want to start with these, uh, the spiritual transformation section. And if you recall, and let's see how many remember from last time, when we talked about earning or work, we talked about moving from a heart of what to what? Does anybody remember? Heart of pride to a heart of gratitude, Right? thinking inwardly about self versus having a thankful heart for what God has granted to us. So that was very fundamental. 
you've got to develop a heart of gratitude, a heart of thanksgiving, primarily, fundamentally, and then work on these other aspects of, of heart attitudes. We also talked about living or the budgeting section, and we talked about a heart of coveting to a heart of contentment. And a key question there was how much is enough? How much is enough? Well, now we're going to go from, in, in giving here, we're going to talk about a heart of indifference to a heart of love. And let's unpack those different aspects of our heart that uh, are in need of sanctification. So the heart of indifference. When it comes to giving, many people might just have an indifferent heart. Indifference says, I might give, I might not give to others. And there may be some uh, motivations that drive that. And so let's look at some of these characteristics that uh, would indicate a heart of indifference if any giving does take place. So a person might give who's indifferent for these reasons. Okay? First of all, giver was taught that all Christians must give 10% of their income to the church, a tithe. That might be a motivator. And you may have come from churches that teach that, that the tithe is kind of the minimal base giving, and therefore you give 10%, you've kind of met your obligation, and then the real giving starts after that. Well, that's not what we teach here at Grace Community Church. Uh, The tithe refers to an Old Testament practice under the law of Moses that applies to the law to the to the land of Israel during and under the law of Moses. So we'll maybe unpack that a little bit as we get to the New Testament principles, but maybe that's what you've been taught. I give a tithe and that's where I start with my giving. As long as I'm doing that, I'm kind of meeting my spiritual obligation for giving. Another um, characteristic, a giver gives only money, never giving themselves to others. Hey, I just, okay, that plate's coming by. I got to reach in my pocket and just put some money in there. Oh, I've fulfilled my obligation to give. Uh, or I write a check, send it off to this ministry or that ministry. Well, giving is more about finances. It's more than that. It's more than just finances. It's giving of ourselves. And we're going to see that when Paul writes to the Philippians. Okay? So, indifference. I give, I'll write a check, sure, let's meet that uh, need there. But it doesn't really impact the individual because they don't give of themselves to others. Another characteristics for a heart of indifference, the giver gives no thought of how or why money given will be used. I gave it. I just gave it to that organization. I don't really know the particulars of what they do. It sounds pretty good. So uh, that's just who I'm going to give to. But there's no real examination of what that ministry is about or uh, doing your sort of due diligence in a sense, giving to with discernment. Number four, the giver gives in order to obtain a deduction for tax purposes. That might be a real high motivation for individuals in higher tax brackets to give and reduce their tax liability. Nothing wrong with receiving a tax deduction, but that shouldn't be your main motivator for giving. Number five, the giver experiences no joy in giving. 
that could indicate a heart of indifference. Just giving, I'm fulfilling an obligation. There's no real heart examination of why I'm giving and the result of that giving should result in joy. Or the giver gives stingily, not generously or sacrificially. I guess I have to give something, so, you know, everybody's looking at me as that container's coming by, so I better put something in there. I'll I'll put a dollar, and somebody might think, hopefully it'll think it's 10 or 20 or 100, you know? But uh, I'm not going to give very much. The giver gives not from a heart of worship, but rather out of duty or to appear generous, kind of going along with the previous one there. Number eight, the giver's heart is not aligned with God's heart of compassion. They're not giving to the things that God cares about. They're just giving to be giving. Number nine, the giver wants to leave a legacy of admiration for self after death. Some wealthy people might say, I'm going to donate this building or this or that as long as my name is on it. You call it after me or there's a nice plaque and people remember me that way that I gave and now I have a legacy. Okay? Or the giver has never been taught the principles of generous giving. You don't necessarily understand what the Bible teaches about giving or why I should give, what should motivate us to give. All right, so those are several characteristics of an indifferent heart. Just don't really care, but I'm fulfilling a duty or an obligation or some other motivation or reason for doing this. Next, the heart of indifference has no real love or compassion for those in need. The heart of indifference is cold towards fellow man. Just again, not really caring. I'll give, just don't make me interact with those people. Okay, they can have my money, but uh, I don't really care about them that much to interact with them or deal with them. You can have a cold heart towards fellow man. Heart of indifferent cares not for the eternal souls of the lost. Again, just trying to focus on the accolades, the benefits here and now that I can get from tax deductions or whatever that may be. Next, the heart of love. So let's take now and say, okay, a heart of indifference, how do, what should be demonstrated instead of that? Well, a heart of indifference is misaligned, as we've already talked about. There's no compassion or love for the things that God loves. The heart of God is loving and compassionate towards the following. We talked about this before we got started with some of, those, some of you who were here. Starting with the downtrodden, the needy, afflicted, helpless, those who are powerless and without a voice, including the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Basically, the poor among us. God cares about those people. He cares deeply about them. Look at this, Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. This is the Lord. So show your love for the alien, talking to Israel, 
For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Remember where you came from, who you were. Remember the condition you were in. And think about others who are in dire straits. And that God has a love for them. So should we. Psalm 918 says, For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Psalm 72, For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. This is talking about the righteous man here. The afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. This should be the heart that we have towards the needy, the afflicted, the poor. And secondly, the downtrodden of first, and God has a definite heart, and there's many other passages. I just give you a couple samples. Second, God has a heart for the lost, those in need of eternal salvation. Matthew 18 Jesus himself speaking. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. The heart of God desires for men to be saved. Desires for their eternal souls to be turned from darkness to light, to be transformed. So evangelism, missions, okay? God cares for the poor, the needy. God cares about missions, missionary work. He cares about evangelism, whether that be here in our local area or across the world. He cares about that. How about 1 Timothy 2? This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So this, again, this is not necessarily speaking of of the will of God that is predetermined salvation, but expressing rather his heart, okay? God is a God who desires men to be saved. And in addition to this, God desires or has compassion and a love for the found, not only the poor, the downtrodden, not only the lost who are in need of salvation, but those of us who have been found. Okay? We need spiritual oversight, teaching. We need to grow in our walk with the Lord. We are members of the body of Christ. Right? This is His church. And so there are those that He has given the responsibility as under-shepherds to lead us. And so the Lord has a great love obviously, for his own church. And we look at Matthew 28 here. 
And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The great commission he is giving to his disciples prior to his ascension. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the mission of the church. So we would, obviously, we want to support the mission of the church, which is to bring in the unsaved, have them hear the gospel, be saved, and become part of the body of Christ, baptized, part of a local church as a member, being taught, being fed. This is our our mission as the church. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, and that double honor has reference to their financial support, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the Lord cares about his under-shepherds, and his under-shepherds give time, energy, blood, sweat, tears for the church, for the equipping of the saints. And so he wants them to be cared for as well. And if you, this is not here, but uh, recently taught on the end of John's gospel where Jesus appears on the shore on the seas of Galilee on the sea of, at the sea of Galilee and he appears to the disciples and they're out fishing they catch this great load of fish they bring it in and and Jesus basically has breakfast with them and at this time he also restores Peter this is as we know Peter denied Christ three times on the night of his his death. And Peter obviously um, felt like he was a failure. And the rest of the disciples saw his fall. And so he needed to be restored. And the Lord had a plan for him. So the Lord three times, because of his three denials, restores him. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Second time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, yes, you know that I love you. Tend my lambs. Third time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And so did Peter fulfill that commission that he was given? Absolutely. You look at the life of Peter. And you look at uh, his testimony in First Peter and talks about the being an under-shepherd and the importance of that. So Peter did fulfill that great commission that he was given personally to feed the Lord's sheep. And so that's one of the reasons why here Paul is writing about the elders. They are to, be, they are to rule well. If they rule well, they are considered worthy of double honor. So we need to care for them as well. Okay? 
So the heart of love, secondly here, the heart of love is shaped by caring for and being generous towards the thing that God cares the things that God cares about with an eternal perspective in mind. Cortinas and Baumer write that little book I've showed you already. This is very important. This will help your motivation. We shouldn't give to things because we care about them deeply. That's not our starting point. Of course we want to care about things deeply. Rather, we should give to things because God cares about them deeply. Note the difference where the motivation starts. Okay, God, where is your heart? That's where my heart needs to be. And as my heart is aligned with his heart, I will care deeply about the things that he cares about. Giving often starts with an obedient step of faith before it blossoms into joyful love over time. That's true. Take a step of obedience in your giving and see how your heart then develops joy in that giving. We'll take a look at the Macedonians and see how they gave, what their heart attitude was as we get into the New Testament Okay, so therefore, believers must develop a heart for those in need by placing their treasure into objects of God's compassion and care and investment into eternity. There's a book called The Eternity Portfolio. We build our portfolios here on earth, but what should we be building? An eternal portfolio, which through our giving and through our, not only financially, but of ourselves and ministry, serving others, is going to lead to people coming into the body of Christ. God will use us as his instruments. And as he brings them into the body of Christ, then they start their journey of sanctification, of um, drawing closer to God. And so that's our eternity portfolio, where we have that impact, because that's what will last. Not our portfolio here on earth but that eternity portfolio. So we have to develop this heart. And as Jesus said here in Matthew 6, 21, for where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your focus of attention and affection is, that's where your heart is. That's your treasure. A couple of verses here. Psalm 41.1, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. You want to be blessed? Consider the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So moral purity, but also caring for these needy people. He didn't say just give for widows and orphans. He says to visit orphans and widows in their distress. That's giving of yourself, of your time, your energy, not just your money. Certainly it's important you know, to give financially to support But James here is saying to visit them in their distress. Great passage here from 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich 
in this present world, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Again, don't focus on the material things because it will all pass away. But on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Amen. Doing good, being a benefit to others, helping those who are in need, doing good works. Obviously, this is not to earn salvation. This is part of the duties that we do out of love as we have already been saved, as our thanksgiving, because this is the heart of God. This is what he loves. This is what he does. This is what Jesus did as he walked the earth. So, be generous and ready to share. You may say, well, I'm not rich. Well, that's a relative term. All of us here in this room are more wealthy than probably 98% of the world. Right? More than likely. Even if you're kind of scraping by here. What we have been given, we have a stewardship over. So developing that heart of generosity out of a heart of love is so vital to our own sanctification, our own growth, and our own being drawn away from the world and drawn towards Christ. All right? So another heart attitude to examine as you move forward in your journey of stewardship. Let's move on to the next section then. Giving's relationship to stewardship. Okay, so we've got to make sure we have this understanding. We already talked about this last week, last Saturday. But understand, as we've defined it here in the material we're covering, stewardship has to do more with what you keep, right? Rather than what you give. Stewardship is managing those possessions and relationships that God has given to you. When you give, that goes to someone else to be a steward of. It goes to the church or to a ministry or to someone in need. That's now their duty to steward. Does that make sense? So everything that we keep is what we are stewards over and what we are managers of on God's behalf. Okay, so as a result of this understanding, stewardship isn't primarily about giving. Stewardship is primarily about managing what you keep. So let's just make sure we have that, that understanding, that distinction. So as a manager, you are to give away what belongs to the Lord already. It's all His anyway. So we give through sacrificial giving and allow Him to bless that giving. What remains is what you manage as His steward. Right? Okay, so building the argument here, giving, therefore, is a precursor to the practice of stewardship. If when I 
get my income or whatever source that comes from, my highest priority should be giving. Whatever I'm going to give should come from the top, not from what's left over at the end, right? So if that's my highest priority, I've already determined, okay, Lord, when when I get paid, this is what I'm going to give from that. And that's taken out of the equation. It's given away. So therefore, I'm already giving. But yet, we still have to have that stewardship mentality because it serves as the foundation for giving. Right? That stewardship mentality is that God owns it all anyway. It's all His anyway. So in other words, everything that the Lord gives to us belongs to Him. So when I give, I'm giving a portion of what He's already given to me. When I keep, I am now managing the portion that remains of what he's already given. Hopefully that's clear now. Okay? So just wanted to make that clarification. We're including giving here in our fundamentals of the faithful steward. But understand where that giving falls in relationship to the management of everything else. That make sense? Okay. So now let's take a look at some biblical principles of giving. The principle of reaping and sowing. So these are principles that are contrary to society's understanding. Principle of reaping and sowing. What a man sows in this life, he will also reap. A generous man will be blessed when a greedy man will be cursed. And let's look at some passages here. 2 Corinthians 9.6, we already looked at verse 7, but uh, in the verse before that, Paul writes and says, now, I say, now this I say, he who sows sparingly, he who is stingy in his giving will also reap sparingly. That person's not going to receive joy. That person's not going to receive blessing. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I'm not here to tell you what bountifully means for you. I don't know what that means to, for you to sow bountifully or how the Lord will bless you in reaping bountifully. That's not my job. That is between you and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to determine what that means. But you understand generally for everyone what that means. Give a little, you're going to get back a little. Go out into the field and sow seed, sow a little bit of seed, you're going to get a small crop. Sow a lot of seed, you're going to get a large crop. So you've got to give in order to get, to receive anything, any kind of blessing or harvest, right? And that's what Paul is drawing on here. So in Proverbs 11, 24, 25, same principles here. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Let's think of that. He who waters will himself be waters. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. A generous man will be prosperous. And again, I don't know what that prosperity looks like. This is not a, we're not talking about the 
health, wealth, and prosperity gospel here. We're talking about these general principles that are found in agriculture that transfer into the giving realm. Right? Proverbs 19.17, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Luke 6, 38. Again, sounds very contrary to what the world will tell us. Give, and it will be given you, to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. This is the Lord's promise to us. Again, I don't know what that looks like. It doesn't mean if I give $100, I'm going to get 1000 I have no idea what it looks like. That prosperity could be financially, could be maybe even more importantly, spiritually. The joy experienced in participating in the Lord's ministry, meeting the needs of others and the joy that comes from that, giving yourself to others and the joy that comes from that. And the Lord will reward us for that. Galatians 6, 6 through 10. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. So you're like, whoa, we're just talking about spiritual things, right? No, Paul goes on here and says, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So not just spiritual truth here. This is truth that transfers to our actions and how we are to do good to others, especially to those of us who are in the body of Christ. Okay? So that's the principle of reaping and sowing. Let's look at another principle, the principle of greediness versus generosity. Right? So the greedy man loves money, and uses people, but the generous steward loves people and uses money. Very insightful statement, right? Greedy people love money and they'll use people to get more of it. The generous steward loves people and uses money to help them. It's the opposite of what we're, this world tells us to do. Okay? So consider the foolishness of the rich man in Luke 12. I don't have the passage up there, but I will read it to you from Luke 12, the foolishness of the rich man. And he told them a parable. Jesus is telling a parable in Luke 12. The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. 
And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's pretty powerful. Right? So here's this man. He's a shrewd businessman. Building bigger barns wasn't wrong. Enjoying the fruit of his labor wasn't wrong. What was his fatal flaw? He failed to consider God. He said to himself, soul, right? Talking to himself, I've done all this. I have accomplished all this. Now I'm just going to take it easy. This is all mine. I have to build bigger barns to hold it all. It's all mine. I'm just going to enjoy it. He had no consideration of God in his business dealings. He lived like an atheist as if God didn't exist, and he was greedy. That's where he failed. Right? He had placed his heart in his treasure of wealth and paid the ultimate price for doing so. That was what was wrong. Again, not wrong to have a lot. God can bless people with wealth, and they can build bigger barns. But in all of that, consider God. God, you gave this all to me. It's all yours. I could just stop, live the rest of my life in ease. But no, Lord, I'm going to actually open up my storehouses and I'll sell to those in need. I'll give away some to those in need. Yeah, that means I've got to keep going and fill this barn up again. But that's what we're here to do. We're not here just to fill it all up and then take a life of ease. Okay? So again, those last words of Jesus in his parable. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Wisdom of the generous man as opposed to the foolish or greedy man. Luke 12, 33 to 34. Jesus says here, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. And it's a very important phrase that we remember here. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Proverbs 11, again, recalling this, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. Again, that seems opposite. Shouldn't I have to keep it? No, scatter it. That's how you're going to increase. And there is one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. I'm going to hold this in my fist. This is mine. Yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered, as we've looked at before. And look at this. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him. 
but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. It's all mine. I don't want anybody to have this. This is for me. No, blessed is the man who opens his storehouse and sells to others who are in need rather than keeping it for himself. Principle, continuing here, of greediness versus generosity. Another verse quite lengthy here in Psalm 112. Right? You can choose to be greedy or you can choose to be generous. But only the generous man is going to be blessed by the Lord. So you choose to be greedy, you're not going to be blessed. It's that simple. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. A light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. See, such a strong contrast between the man who fears the Lord and the wicked. Principle of temporal versus the eternal. Foolishness of the rich young ruler. Uh, I don't have that passage up here either, but the rich young ruler, basically, he probably served as a ruler in the synagogue. He was rich, had an interest in spiritual matters, And you know the story here, so I'm not going to read it all. And it seems like he just wanted Jesus to confirm the already possessed eternal life. Teacher, what what thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus quotes a couple of the commandments to him. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, do not steal, bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He says, I've kept all those things. I've done that. So what else do I need to do? What other work? Seems like I'm pretty good. Seems like I've I've got it all because I'm doing exactly those things that you said I need to do. Ah, but, okay, just give everything away. Come follow me. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, Jesus, I don't think so. Nope, not going to do that. So Jesus found the key point in his heart that needed to be exposed and revealed. He loved his money and he was unwilling to give it up. He was unwilling to see his own spiritual condition and Jesus exposed that, right? So he was self-deceived. So as a result of failing to see the depth of his own sinfulness, Jesus exposed the condition of his heart and revealed what he loved the most, his wealth. Just look at the final portion of the passage. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. 
When he'd heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Sounds like it's impossible, right? But this man walked away just as lost as before he had come up to Jesus. His true spiritual condition was directly tied to his love for what he possessed in this world. So he had a temporal view. He lost the opportunity to gain true spiritual riches. And that being eternal life. Right? He was not committed to following Jesus at all cost. So his love for wealth kept him from eternal life, which is a great tragedy. So wealth can be an easy replacement for God for those who have a temporal view of life. And love for that wealth will keep a man from entering the kingdom because wealth is his God. Wealth is an idol of the heart. So in opposition, in the very next chapter, we see Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus. He's also a rich man. But he did not have that self-righteous attitude that the rich young ruler had. He was seeking to find Jesus, but Jesus was also seeking him. Right? Jesus comes up to him. And Zacchaeus knew who he was, that he was despised by his own people. He had committed sins against them by taking more than what was required by the Romans for taxes and tax collection. But yet he gladly received Jesus. He didn't come up with a self-righteous attitude. Jesus was seeking him, said, today I'm coming to your house. And in this process of interacting with Jesus, how do we know that that Zacchaeus had a transformed heart? How do we know? Because he said, if I've wronged anyone... I'll pay it back four times if I've defrauded anyone. He was willing to part with his wealth. It was no longer his God. His new master was Jesus. And so when Jesus said it's impossible for a man to enter the kingdom, it's impossible for men. But Jesus says, here, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Right? So that which is impossible with man is possible with God. Right? For Jesus had replaced the wealth of love for wealth in the life of Zacchaeus. Love for Jesus had replaced that. So now he possessed eternal life. He was willing to part with all these riches. So, just let me, as we're studying here again, let me draw your attention to that appendix, the second one, appendix two, giving and tithing in the Old Testament. If you want to hear a message that basically is that in sort of teaching form, and you can kind of even follow along probably with your appendix too, um, you can go to Grace Church, our website, gracechurch.org, click on the sermons tab, you can put my name in, Messages will come up that I've taught and look for one 
from 10 years ago almost, entitled Giving. Should have been entitled um, something about the tithe, but uh, that's how they titled it on the web page, on the website. So that's from a faith builder's message I gave back in 2013 called Giving, and that will walk you through basically the giving and tithing in the Old Testament. Don't have time to go through all that today. Wish I did, but uh, to summarize that, you know, giving under the law of Moses, as I said at the beginning, giving under the law of Moses. First of all, we, we have to understand that Israel was a theocracy. So God was intended to be their king, their lord, their master. Of course, they asked for a king, and so the Lord gave that to them. But just to understand, it was a theocracy, and, and most nations are set up in certain ways, right? We don't have a theocracy here. We have a representative republic. Um, but under those conditions, there was a theocracy. God was the head. What was the document that served as their governing document for Israel? Yes, the Mosaic Covenant, the Law of Moses, was what served basically as their constitution. Okay? We have a constitution. They had a constitution. Except theirs was divine. Right? Divinely given through Moses. So the Law of Moses served as their constitution. And in that law, it was, they set up the, sort of the hierarchy. Okay? We have the priests. Right? The priests who serve in the temple. And the temple would be eventually be built after the tabernacle. And so those priests were not given an inheritance in the, law, in the land. They were given no land. The Levites were not given any land. So how were they to be cared for? Well, they were to be cared for through the tithing system. Okay? So you could kind of think of the tithe under the Mosaic Covenant as a tax. It's in a sense... That's what it was. It was a tax that, they, that all the people were required to give. Just like we have taxes, it takes care of our government officials. <laughs> we could get into that, but we won't. But that was the design under the Mosaic Covenant, that the Levites would be cared for through a Levitical tithe, giving 10% that was meant for the Levites because they had no land. And if you have no land, you can't raise crops or have herds. That was the main form of wealth for the people. All the other tribes were given land so that they could raise crops and herds. But the Levites were to dedicate their time to the temple, to serving the people. So how were they to survive and live? Well, it was through that Levitical tithe. Then you have two more tithes. You have the festival tithe. So everyone gives another 10%. Okay? So as people think the tithe just consists of one 10%, don't understand the tithing system under the law of Moses. So you have a second tithe that's given for the festival celebration. All of Israel's to gather for many festivals. Well, you're supposed to bring 10% so that you can celebrate those festivals. That was the festival tithe. And then there was a third tithe. Basically, it was collected, it was 10% over three years. So basically, three and a third percent per year. And it was a poor tithe for the poor, to support the poor. So basically, annual, annualized, you're giving 23 and a third percent through the tithing system under the law of Moses. 
that's not too far off from our own tax system and our effective tax rates, what we give. Certainly, we have a marginal tax bracket, and I won't get into all that either. But understand, that was sort of their taxation system, to care for the leaders, to have the celebrations, to care for the poor, and that was the system under the law of Moses. Do we live under the law of Moses? No, we do not. When Christ died on the cross, what happened in the temple? The veil of the temple torn from top to bottom. No more sacrificial system. The old covenant is fulfilled, done away with. We don't fall under the law of Moses. We fall under the law of Christ. Okay? Now, the same lawgiver. So there's going to be things that match up with the Old Testament versus New Testament. In the Old Testament, there was not only these obligatory tithes, there was also voluntary giving. Right? People gave voluntarily for the building materials of the tabernacle. People gave voluntarily for the building materials of the temple. And in both instances, they gave so much that they had to tell the people to stop giving. But that was all voluntary. So there's both obligatory and voluntary giving under the Old Covenant. Okay? So I just basically summarized what you're going to find in this appendix. Okay? But that serves as the background. When we come to the New Testament, there's also obligatory giving, taxation. There's also voluntary giving, what we give to the church, to charities, to individuals in need. Okay? So there are parallels there, but we don't fall under the law of Moses. And that's what I want to have you fundamentally understand as we now get into giving principles in the New Testament. Okay? So we start in the Gospels. And we look here at the, the life of Christ during his life and ministry. So understand, the law of Moses is still in effect during his ministry. Not until he dies, the law of Moses is no longer in effect. Okay? So tithing was even in effect in, in the, under the ministry of Jesus. Yet the timeless principle of giving freely and generously to others in the Old Testament was reiterated by Christ. Remember that voluntary giving that I talked about? We've even seen it already. Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. Right? So there's that voluntary heart of generosity. And that is based upon, you know, what we see here in Deuteronomy 15. There's a poor man among you. Don't harden your hearts. Don't close your hand to your poor brother you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. There was voluntary giving. And Jesus is basing his teaching on that in the New Testament under his ministry based upon the, the Old Testament. Right? And you can see that there at the end. You shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. By the Mosaic Covenant, there were poor individuals living in the land. And 
Deuteronomy tells us they will always exist. That's true even under Jesus' ministry. It's true for now. We will never alleviate poverty because Jesus said you will always have the poor among you just as was the case under the Mosaic Covenant for the Israelites. You'll always have poor. Okay, so although Jesus' teaching still falls within the time frame of the Mosaic Covenant until his death, he also began to introduce the principles of the kingdom to Israel. Christ's rejection results in the kingdom being providentially postponed, and then he introduces the concept of the church. I won't read those, but Matthew 16, 18 and 18, 17. First time this term is used in the sense of what would become the church, the body of Christ. Right? The church doesn't exist yet, and Jesus is already introducing it in Matthew 16. Peter's great confession, upon this rock I will build my church. First time we ever see the term, and it's used by Jesus to introduce this new body, this new entity that will exist. And in Matthew 18, we all know what Matthew 18 is about in the context, speaking of the church, it's about church discipline. So even before the church exists, Jesus, the first principles he introduces are that the church will never be overcome, he will build it, and then the principles for purity in the church for maintaining purity through church discipline to restore those who are in sin, to confront them and to, with the goal of restoring them. Right? So, we get to Acts through Revelation. Now we're into the church age. Acts 2, the church is born under the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. And we have this new entity now in existence. But now Paul, he's gone through his ministry. He's uh, meeting with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And in his farewell address to them, he quoted some words about Christ, about giving. that are not even found in the Gospels. We don't even have these recorded. So these are words, additional words, that were not recorded in the Gospels. And it's a reminder that voluntary giving to those in need, always demonstrates the character of God. So Acts 20, 35. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said. I challenge you to find this in the Gospels. You won't. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And we even have that quoted today by non-Christians as well in certain contexts. All right? So it's more blessed to give than to receive. And as I've already mentioned, the Israelite economy no longer existed under the Mosaic law. So all required giving under that law ceased. Tithing is no longer necessary. Why not? Because there's no longer a Levitical priesthood. There's no longer the sacrificial system. The temple service has been abolished. Therefore, there's no longer longer a need to support that ministry. Right? So, it's gone. So what becomes the standard? The standard becomes sacrificial and voluntary giving. Of course, we have the obligatory giving through our taxes, and we'll look at that in a little while. 
Okay, an example, as I mentioned earlier, we would talk about is the Macedonian churches. Here in 2 Corinthians 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction, they're in tribulation, they're under trial, their abundance and joy of their deep poverty, that doesn't sound right, does it? Abundance and joy of their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. So Paul is collecting funds for the church in Jerusalem. And this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That summarizes the heart of giving right there. This attitude of these Macedonian churches. You say you don't have anything? Well, they're out of their poverty. They gave liberally. They gave. And they first gave of themselves. They gave of themselves to the Lord and to us. Right? So their generosity overflowed from a heart of thanksgiving and love for and devotion to the Lord. So let's just look at some of these characteristics. They gave sacrificially and willingly. It says according to their ability and beyond their ability. That's sacrificial. Out of their own accord. Willingly. There was no obligation for them. It was willingly that they gave. And even they begged for the opportunity to give. When's the last time that we have begged for the opportunity to give? I think John MacArthur, our pastor, said that biggest thing missing during COVID when we weren't gathering together was the practice and the worship of giving, the importance of that, how vital that was to us to have the opportunity to come together in corporate worship, and part of that worship is, is the giving. So they begged for the opportunity to give, and they viewed giving as a privilege not an obligation. It was a privilege for them. They wanted to participate. They begged to participate. And also, they were deliberate and proactive in their giving. It wasn't a second thought. They understood the needs, and they were very deliberate and proactive. They wanted to do the giving. They asked to do the giving. They begged to do the giving. Now, plans for giving by the Corinthian church... This I say to you, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, as we've already seen, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That was our starting verse in the giving section. And that is fundamental to understand what kind of attitude we need to have and what and how we should approach giving right and it goes on there I won't read all of that because um, we've seen a lot of this before but it's out, out of a heart of thanksgiving okay 
Paul reminded the Corinthians of their commitment to collect an offering for the church in Jerusalem. He reminded them of the principle of sowing bountifully in order to reap bountifully. In verse 7, as we've already said, serves as a primary text on New Testament church aid giving. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So let's make some observations there. You're giving purposefully, not impulsively. Oh, that the plate is being passed, the container is being passed. I better pull out something. No, you're already planned. You've, you're purposeful in your giving. Lord, we've already, I've already you know, dealt in my heart with you, and this is what you've laid on my heart that I need to give. I'm purposeful about it. Freely. No one's pulling it out of you. You're giving not grudgingly or under compulsion, but freely. Also, giving cheerfully, not stingily or from sting, or, or not from, greedily or from stinginess. Paul reminded them that God is a supplier of grace in money matters, and will make certain that they have everything they need from Him and find contentment because of their trust in Him. Just read the rest of that passage. The result will be increasing thanksgiving to God. Not crying out out of want, but thanksgiving. They learn that they cannot outgive God. He had already given the greatest gift of all, his son. And we see that in the passage. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That's the gift of his son. God gave God is a giving God. Therefore, you are to be giving people, generous people. So, summary characteristics for the New Testament giver. <clears throat> we are to be, <clears throat> excuse me, worshipful in our giving, cheerful in our giving, voluntary, generous, sacrificial, deliberate, purposeful, consistent, future-oriented. If you wonder what should drive your giving, these things should drive your giving. And the result will be joy and thanksgiving. So now some practical advice on giving. The steward asks, how much should I keep, not how much should I give? Why? Because everything belongs to the Lord. Typically, when we approach giving, we're going, well, how much do you want me to give, Lord? Well, if you're a steward, you're saying, God owns it all anyway. It's his. So God, it's all yours. How much should I keep? It all belongs to you. How much should I keep? And that's going to be different for every individual, every household. Okay, Lord, what, what do I need to live on? What do I need to take care of my family? What is a, a you know, right kind of standard of living that isn't um, overly indulgent? And that's, again, that's for everyone. And if you're struggling to find funds to give, well, that's what we talked about last time, where you've got to create some margin. Your expenses have to be lower than your income. You've got to create that margin. Okay? So it all belongs to him. So the real question is, how much should I keep, Lord? Because it all belongs to you. That makes sense? It flips the question. It flips the issue on its head. Next, giving must take the highest priority in your budget, as we've already talked about as well. There's no predetermined percentage in the New Testament. Every time Jesus was given the opportunity to give a percentage, he didn't. Every time Paul could have 
He didn't. Anytime he taught on giving, it's all voluntary, but those principles need to be in place. Should be first. But you say, well, when I get my check, the taxes have already been taken out and my 401k contributions have already been taken out. Well, I always tell people, if you're going to base your giving off a certain percentage or amount, whatever that is, I'm not saying it needs to be 10%, not saying that at all. Whatever that is. Say, you know what, Lord, we think we can give 15% of our income. Well, make that off the gross, not off what comes in after the government takes their share. Maybe chronologically they came first, but priority-wise, giving is higher than your taxes that you're paying. All right? So maintain that. Okay, Lord, if, if we're, we determine in our household we're going to give a certain amount or percent, then take it off the gross, not the net that comes into your pocket. Does that make sense? Okay? So no predetermined percentage. It's all voluntary. If you choose to give a certain percentage, you can do that, but that's not required either. But the fact of the matter, you should predetermine that. It's not what's left over at the end. It comes off the top. Giving can be um, directed to any number of recipients and not just, you know, don't give just to receive a tax deduction. Right? So giving should be made to the church, but also you can give to gospel-centered charities, relief organizations, mercy ministries, distributors of Christian living resources, college, university, seminaries. I'm just kind of throwing some things out there to give you some ideas. Certainly not limited to these things, right? You can give for the benefit of individuals or families, missionaries, seminary families, poor families, single-parent families, people you know in your own family who need help or assistance, right? Here in point D, family members, okay? Okay? So as long as you're following these principles and seeking the Lord while also providing for your family, give what you determine to give. We don't say, okay, family, we're going to give away 90% of our income. There's 10% left, so you don't eat, but every third day. That's when we're going to eat, every third day. No, the Lord also wants us to care for our households, and he provides for us for our households. Okay? That's, but that's level or standard of living is between you and the Lord to determine that. And finally, don't just give generously, live generously. Don't just give of your finances, give of your life to others. All right? A few resources here. Maybe that should be F. I'm sure, I think I maybe um, put the wrong letter in there, but uh, this giving resources, so some books on giving, a uh, little, very short little book, you've probably seen this or heard of this, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Don't agree, as with any resource I'm going to recommend, you know, be discerning. Not everything in here I would say, you know, I'm totally on board with, but get, you know, you'll get the heart of giving from this, The Treasure Principle. I've already mentioned this book that I have in e-form, so I don't have a book to show you, but Howard Dayton, your money counts. A lot you can see a lot of quotations in the material from that book. Very helpful in all of these various categories. But I would highly recommend these sermons on giving. Um, 
John's sermons are Pastor John's sermons from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You can see them all listed there. So you can go to Grace to You and look these up. You can even go to the Grace to You app and find these. And so that was put into a little book that is no longer in print. It's called Whose Money Is It Anyway? This is basically a summary of these sermons that you'll find here. So if you can find this, it's out of print. But listen to those sermons. Great series. A really excellent series by our pastor. And so he's, he goes over some fundamental principles of a biblical view of money. And he gets into giving. And it's, it's really powerful. And I've taken some of these principles that I've showed, shared with you from that. Okay? So then uh, some online resources here. I've mentioned this website before, Faith and Finance. You can find all kinds of articles related to giving there. They also have a podcast that you can listen to. Generousgiving.org. And I'll just let you look through those. Christian Foundation of America, National Christian Foundation. We can talk about those individually if you want, but I do want to just move along here. So just in a few minutes here, Q&A. Anything that has uh, arisen that you want to ask about related to this topic of giving that we just covered here? Yes, sir. The topic of uh, giving oneself, uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on that as well as um, does that sort of include one's abilities or like talents type of? Yeah, so the question is giving oneself. Elaborate on that. What does that really mean? Also, does that include our talents and abilities? Yes, I, I think primarily it includes our giftedness, okay? When we come into the body of Christ, we're given a unique, you could say, unique set of gifts or gift, however you want to look at that. And that is meant for serving others. So giving of ourselves is taking part in ministry, whatever, however, wherever the Lord leads you to do that. So it's primarily caring for others in the body of Christ, Certainly that can be the widow and the orphan, but it can just be here, like if you're, you're, you have a heart towards ministry to youth or children, and you come and you serve. You serve during vacation Bible school, or you become a, a Sunday school teacher. Um, any multitude of things that you can do in that realm, serve in the nursery. That's giving of yourself so that others, parents, young parents, can go and take part in the worship service. So that's giving of yourselves. Uh, uh, certainly, giftedness comes into this. Like, I mean, today, this is what I'm doing. I'm giving of myself. Hopefully, you understand that I'm giving of myself to you to give of my time and energy and what the Lord has blessed me with and um, the things that I've studied and I want to share them with you. Your, your pastors and elders give of themselves to you. Church is not a spectator sport. Right? It is a participant's participatory activity. That we are all here and every part of the body of Christ is vital. Hey, I'm a hand, I'm not a foot. I must not be as valuable. Or whatever reason you may come up with. No, Christ has put every single part into the body for a particular purpose to serve the overall body. Right? So, 
Yes, and then if you have particular talents uh, and abilities even beyond your spiritual giftedness, yeah, you can use those to, to serve others and to help others. Um, you know, I can, uh, we have a gentleman in, in commission who um, has cancer and he's bedridden. Um, I could just write a check or send him in the mail. Here's some gift cards for, for uh, restaurants. Or we can do like our fellowship grouping is doing, our, our little Bible study actually is doing, is, is going taking him meals, spending time with him, visiting him, praying with him. That's the giving of yourself. We're not just like, here's the food, drop it off at the door, see you later, right? So that's the, that practical side. That we're giving of ourselves to the body of Christ to minister to one another. That's what giving yourself means. And primarily you're saying, Lord, I'm yours. You, I belong to you. You paid the price for me to re- rescue me from sin and death. I now belong to you. The blood of Christ has purchased me. So I belong to you to serve the body. So does that help? Any other follow-up to that? Is that good? Okay. Anyone else? Yeah, well, sometimes, you know, you're, you have some extra funds and you want to do something special with that and maybe you determine, okay, I'm going to forego that and I'm going to give that for the benefit of someone else. So, you know, at some point it, it costs you something. That's what sacrificial is. It costs you something. Um, you may have your regular giving that's built into your budget um, and that's a wonderful thing, and you give it cheerfully and, and all those, with all those principles and, and virtues that we talked about. But at some point, you might say, okay, um, this is going to cost me something. That's, that's when it becomes sacrificial, like those Macedonians. They gave according to their ability and even beyond their ability. They gave generously. So they withheld things that they could have used for themselves in order to give and bless someone else. So, and that's healthy for us to say no to something that could we could enjoy and use and benefit from and use that for somebody else. That's part of what I think, you know, is kind of driven John's heart on the, um, um, what do we call it? The, the giving, what do we call that? Um, now I can't even think of the terminology, but if the Lord, you predetermine, okay, Lord, if you bless me with this amount uh, this year, then I will give it faith, faith promise. Yeah, faith promise giving. And then the Lord gives that, and you give it. Okay, the Lord's been faithful to do that. I could have used that extra funds that came in from an unknown source, an unexpected source for myself, but I determined ahead of time I want to give that. So any number of ways giving can be sacrificial. But that is also time. Your person, your giving of your time sacrificially. You know, all of us could be somewhere else. I could be somewhere else right now, enjoying something else. But that's not where the Lord has called me. He's called me to be here. So I'm giving him my time here. And it's my joy to do that. It's a privilege for me. It's not a burden or obligation or duty. It's uh, something that I want to do that the Lord has laid on my heart. And so hopefully you take these things and bring them into your practice in your life as well.
So does that help with the sacrificial? All right. Anything else? Yes, sir. That practice of being um, generous, um, how discerning do we need to be? We just do. We need to discern who we're giving it to in terms of need. In the practice of giving, how discerning should we be? Yes, we should be discerning. Um, you know, there's the guy on the street who's begging for money, right? Um, you don't, I don't necessarily know what he's going to do with that money. Um, but there are those who would say, well, I'm not going to give him money. I'll carry around a stack of restaurant gift cards and give it to him. Therefore, he has to go and get food with that versus him going and buying cigarettes and alcohol, whatever he's going to do. So there is some discernment there. But there also has to be the fact that when you give, you, just, you have to let go of that, right? It's no longer under my control. I'm not the steward of that anymore. That person now is. Um, but you don't want to just give foolishly to those who are just going to squander and waste. Uh, share, you know, show some discernment. Be wise in that. And you can't always discern that. You can't always know exactly um, Certainly, there's going to be people who take advantage of us, right? And our flesh says, I don't want that to happen. I'm not going to allow that, so I'm not going to give. Um, So there has to be that attitude that, yeah, someone might waste this, squander it, but I just need to be, I do need to exercise some discernment, though, in that practice as well, right? So for the person in the church, that comes, says, I need funds to eat. Well, are you working? Well, no, I'm not working right now. Do you have the ability to work? Yes, I do. Are there jobs available to you? Yes, there are. I'm sorry. That's your source. Go out there and work. Because Apostle Paul said, you refuses to work, will not eat. I'm not talking about the people who are unable to work, don't have the ability to work. But those who have the ability, you send them out into the marketplace and say, get a job, earn the income. That's how you're going to feed yourself. We're not here to indulge your laziness. Right? So that's discerning. That's wise. So again, there is wisdom and discernment in that whole process that we need to maintain. There is discretion. Uh, The question is, how do you deal with, uh, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ that, uh, you know, they show kind of an attitude change if you don't support a specific mission? And we've seen that so many times during our, you know, uh, church, uh, you know, uh, fellowship that, you know, they come and say, you know, uh, we need kind of a, a contribution or charitable contribution. And when your heart is not in that mission, and then there's a whole attitude change regardless how far that relationship goes. So now, uh, and we've seen that multiple times, not in this church necessarily, but in other churches that we, you know, had fellowship with. So how do you deal with, uh, and we know that they're, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes. Yeah, so how do we deal with situations where, we're called on to give, and if our heart is not directed towards that particular ministry, um, should we? How should we deal with that? Because 
now if we don't give to it, we may be treated differently. The relationship may suffer. Well, I mean, I'm not responsible for how they respond. Okay, I'm responsible for um, where the Lord leads me to give. So, um, you know, if there can be a, a discussion with the person, say, you know what, our, our relationship here is suffering. I don't want that to happen. But I can't just give because you say I should give or I need to give here. I realize there's a need, but the Lord has led me to give here. So maybe there's the ability to have that conversation in order to to restore that relationship, anything that suffers there. Um, other than that, if, if there is no, and they're not willing to talk about and discuss that, then you know, yeah, the relationship may suffer, um, but it's not from your side. It's not your fault for that. It's their response to you, sort of, sort of demanding that you give to this thing because obviously it is important and you must give and there's need there. So give where the Lord has led you to give and you can't worry about that response unless you have the opportunity to, to address it. And, you know, even if, if they, um, maybe just, they just distance themselves, that's one thing, but if they start treating you sinfully, then now we've got a whole other issue that we may need to address um, in confronting that sin. So that's another level that you may have to address, but hopefully not. Okay, anyone else? Sir? Yeah. Well, the, yeah. So the question is for the singles: um, Is there something in particular more that should be paid attention to because you don't have your partner, your wife, your husband um, to have that conversation with and develop that um, giving plan? So. I would say for singles is um, get involved with other men. I mean, that's what Men of the Word is all about. You have your small groups and your leaders and, you know, go to them and say, I'd like to have this conversation with you. Can you help me discern here? Is this wise? Am I thinking the right way about my, my giving plans here? Um, and so have that accountability that you don't have that a husband and wife would have together in a relationship. So that's, that's where I would recommend is, is open yourself up and have that conversation and hopefully your leaders are open to, to doing that as well, having opening their own hearts to uh, share their own practices with you. So that would be my recommendation there.